0: from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC
1: Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Marianne Smart of the music department discussing her book, Waiting for Verdi, Opera and Political Opinion in Nineteenth-Century Italy, 1850 to 1848. She is joined by Hanna Ginsburg of the Philosophy Department. Yeah, well, thanks so much. Um, I'm just really delighted to have been invited to uh, participate in this. Mary and I um, a couple of times have taught together a course in the Big Ideas series, an undergraduate course called Music and Meaning, where we've explored questions about music and meaning. And as far as I recall, I don't think Verdi or any Italian opera figured in that course that's at all. That's right,
0: we did do Wagner. <laughs> we did some Wagner.
1: I think that's maybe the only opera that we did. I think, uh, yeah. But it's been wonderful uh, reading this book to see some of the themes that we discussed uh, in that course. In other contexts um, emerge, and one of the themes. Uh, I'm gonna actually in a moment. I'm going to ask Marianne to give us a sort of précis of what the book is about and what some of the main themes are that she wants to emphasise as coming out of the book. Um, but one of the themes that really came out strongly for me, which I want to emphasise, is the idea that uh, putting it very crudely and briefly music has meaning that or can have meaning. That even though music is unlike language in that it doesn't have fixed conventional meanings and so there is a kind of fluidity that a certain musical passage or musical trope can mean different things in different contexts, it's a mistake to suppose that music can signify just anything it's not the case, for example, that, or not, sorry, I should say it is the case, as Mary Ann says in the conclusion of the book, that mus- words and music do not fit together any which way. And she also points out that this is something that's very much recognized by critics and philosophers in the time that she's writing about. So it's false to suppose that music can signify just anything which amounts to saying that it's false to suppose that music cannot signify. Um, so that's one theme uh, that really came through uh, and which I'm hoping that we can discuss uh, a bit. Um, but before that, I'd like to turn things over to Mary Ann and to ask her to sketch what she thinks are uh, the important themes of, of her book.
0: Thank you, Hannah. Thank you so much for agreeing to read the book and talk about it. <laughs> um, but, um, I'm just quickly trying to rejig my, my sense of what the book is about in relation to music and meaning. Um, the, uh, I, when I think about it um, unprompted by a philosopher, I usually think about it in terms of history and politics because that's sort of the, the way musicologists, music historians have been oriented over the last decade or so. Um, so a really broad way of saying what I was trying to do in the book would be to say I was trying to show how a form of elite music, opera, most made and mostly consumed by elites, um, and also a very sort of light, entertaining form of music could make a difference to the concrete realities and power structures um, experienced by its first audiences. So the opera, is from the first half of the 19th century in Italy, roughly, and the situation that the audiences were in, there's many ways of of looking at that, but the main one that features in this book and that generally comes up when people think about the kind of political efficacy or the political clout of opera in Italy is to do with national identity, articulation of a kind of shared voice among what I, I think most of you probably know was not by any means a coherent culture or nation at that point. Um, Italy was not Italy. Many parts of it were under control of Austria, other parts controlled by the Vatican, by Spanish, uh, the Spanish Bourbon monarchy, um, or individual dukes and princes. So it was very dispersed and linguistically as well. One thing that they had in common was opera. And um, so there's a tradition in writing about music of seizing upon that and uh, using opera uh, as a kind of channel for all kinds of arguments about Italian unification in the 19th century. Um, The most frequent one probably has to do with Verdi. It begins and more or less ends with Verdi, which means Uh, from the 1840s up to to the end of the 19th century. And that mode mode of argument, which I'm responding to and kind of resisting quite a bit in the book, uh, starting with the title, um, mostly focuses on plots which are are read as allegories of Italian experience. Various, um, you can pick almost any Verdi opera, especially from his first 20 or so, Um, and find some sort of oppressed group struggling, either a civil war situation with two populations fighting, or an oppressed group and a dominating group, which is usually configured negatively. Um, And sympathy for the underdog, I mean, it's kind of a romantic tendency anyway. But um, so a lot of the previous work on opera and Italian political, represent, political identity had to do with representation, had a kind of representational orientation. This shows Italians what they're living through and kind of kicks them into a heightened consciousness which allows something to happen. Um, my book is different from that in a couple of, a couple of important ways. Uh, first of all, it starts earlier. Um, I like messy, unclear situations in general, I think. Um, So the 19th century before the 1840s in, I think in Europe in general, but certainly in Italy, was a time when nobody really knew what to think. Northern Italy, where a lot of the cultural prestige and a lot of the operatic activity was, was completely run by the Habsburg Empire. And a lot of people didn't really mind. So it wasn't a situation of oppressors and a sort of evil colonial outsider. It was more a situation of Italians getting along, appreciating certain aspects of the situation, um, less and less so as time went on, until a breaking point or a series of breaking points. Um, So a lot of the political and cultural expressions uh, came in submerged forms, and forms that you really have to search for. um, Also because there was just a lot of censorship and surveillance. Um, So I look at this period where opera that a lot of people don't, including Hanna, who admitted this to me the other night, um, don't find very significant, especially politically. Rossini, Donizetti, um, even some less significant people like Mercadante. Probably the most important thing that I do in the book that's different from other people is to get away from that um, the discourse of representation and a kind of parallel, a parallelism between what goes on on the stage and what was going on in the political realities or the lives of the audiences. Instead, I'm trying, and, and I do this in different ways in different chapters, it's very ad hoc really, depending on the sort of material, but I'm trying to get at, um, things that the music or the combination of music and words allowed people to think or feel in the theater, which then could be transmuted into values, statements, and discourses outside of the theater, and then at another remove and maybe even by other actors could be transmuted into political action. So you kind of you get from opera to revolution, but you don't get there very directly. Um, And the phrase that uh, I'm I'm pretty uh, feel at best ambivalent about sort of affect theory and, and all of that, but the phrase that kept coming to mind as I was trying to think about how to describe this was structures of feeling, that at least in a couple of examples, a couple of case studies in the book, I try to show how particular innovations in the language of opera, in the drama or the musical style, made possible new feelings or new relationships between um, the spectator and the fictional representation, which then enabled people outside of the theater to relate to each other in different ways. And then very briefly, the third thing that the book does is that it's, um, although it's quite uh, thoroughly about music and about composers and works, it's not about Um, my interpretations of those works, or at least my interpretations of those works are all the way through it, but I try to be led all the time by what some contemporary critic or observer has noticed, and ideally by a bulk, a kind of critical mass of observations at the time about the works. So the contemporary reception was always in the foreground when I was trying to figure out what matters about these operas to me which parts of them are worth paying attention to now. And I would be led by the wonderful, rich press of the 19th century. Um, It's not always that much fun to read, but there is a lot of it.
1: Yeah, thanks, thanks, thanks so much. So one of the things, I mean, the book felt incredibly rich to me because it felt like you were telling this uh, untold, uh, really interesting social and political history Uh, I felt like I understood so much more about what had been going on in Italy during that time and the role that opera played in this. Uh, But I do think that it is just shot through with this uh, very strong musical sensibility and appreciation of the importance of actual music and what music can do. And I thought, uh, as a way of continuing the conversation, we might look at some of the passages and listen to um, a couple of the passages that Mary Ann talks about in the book, uh, which I found uh, just particularly striking. So we have a handout um, with musical examples. I am not sure, I've got more of them on this side. I want to leave one for myself. And not sure if there are quite enough to go around. Some of you might have to share. But the first passage that I wanted to listen to is a number from uh, The Thieving Magpie, uh, La Gazzaladra. Uh, and I'm actually gonna ask, uh, uh, maybe, um, would you like to say something about the context of this? Uh, or maybe, maybe I will just play it first. <laughs> and, um,
0: it's a well-known tune, some people will recognize yes. it, even if you don't know why you recognize right. it. Right,
1: you may very well recognize, because it, it figures in the overture to The Thieving Magpie, which is very often played,
0: in uh, if a you don't know. a lot of TV advertising as well, and movie, oh, really? um, movies that have to do with, I don't know, blowing things up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but maybe but. Just, just to set the scene,
1: uh, there is a servant girl who has been terribly unjustly accused of uh, of stealing something uh, which she didn't steal, it was the thieving magpie that stole it, but she's in prison and in prison she is visited by the Podesta, the mayor of the town who is going to serve as the magistrate and he has already determined to uh, condemn her to death, but he attempts to get uh, basically together to have sex with him uh, by promising her, uh, her, I don't know if it's freedom, or at least that she won't be executed. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a horrible, dark scene uh, and in a way a, a tragic scene and a horrible scene of, uh, of an abuse of power. And that's something, and what we hear is Uh, the the cabaletta, uh, the sort of end part of the the mayor's aria, so you hear him singing, Um, and then a a bit later on, you hear uh, people outside saying, uh, it's time to go to, uh, it's time for the trial to take place. Um, But you hear him singing, and I think the darkness of what's going on is important to bear in mind uh, when you listen to the music. So, I'm just going to play it. It's about um, three and a half minutes.
0: That was a great plot summary. Oh, thank
2: you. I'll
1: tell you (laughs) when we get to the quotation. stop it there because,
0: so wha- how does this work? Is that, um, they <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, this was a very controversial passage for critics uh, right after Rossini wrote this opera in 1817. Um, Rossini in general, uh, you, you may find this astonishing because the music is sort of easily pleasant and popular and it was incredibly popular but it was also incredibly controversial. Um, and this, this tells you something about the orientation of critics in the 19th century, the early 19th century, especially Italian critics, that they, they were kind of plagued with guilt or um, aversion to the idea that the music could be too pleasurable and not closely tied to the words. Um, so Rossini in general often would toss off a tune um, that sounded good in the moment but didn't have much to do with what the character was actually singing. And this troubled critics a lot. I think they thought there was a danger of contamination by too much musical enjoyment. Um, this, this was the worst of all of those crimes that Rossini committed because it's a moment of you know, practically an execution. It's sort of the moment right before what's going, she, she is of course saved before she's executed exonerated, but um, it's a very dark moment in the plot and um, there's a lot of social forces to do with this kind of miscarriage of justice that has a real big social basis that the audiences would have understood as well. So there's a lot of weight to this moment um, socially and politically. And Rossini tosses in this waltz. Um, Critics, some critics said, this just shows how terrible he is. Um, he really isn't worth all of the enthusiasm that you're all wasting on him. And others, including Stendhal, who is always the most fun to read on Rossini and on pretty much anything, um, said, no, actually, this is a stroke of genius. Um, and then and Stendhal, who you know doesn't care that much about consistency, um, said a couple of different things. He said, um, oh, it's, the waltz is very appropriate because it communicates the sense that everybody is late for the trial. The trial's about to begin and we can feel that they're rushing or they should be rushing, they're not because actually the, the magistrate is sort of lingering to try to seduce or you know, brutalize this, this poor young woman. But um, it's, it's a sign that, of belatedness or hurry. Um, and then he said, well, it's the inexorability of fate Um, There were various explanations that he tried, but none of them made very much sense. And so so the point that I make in the book about this moment is first of all that um, the effort people put into explicating these kinds of moments is in itself quite significant. That they didn't just go to the opera, as as people have often said, they didn't just go to the opera for the fun of it or to chat with each other. That's often said about this, uh, this period in Italy. That nobody was really listening anyway. They went for conversation, for eating, for gambling, and for admiring the singers, and then what they were actually listening to came last. This kind of debate makes it clear that there was more to it than that, and it mattered what was going on. Um, and then, um, at a kind of, um, there's, there's quite a lot of uh, explication between that point and this next point, but in the book I use this example. Um, to tie up a bunch of philosophical debates that were going on in the Milanese press at the beginning of the 19th century to suggest that audiences were just beginning to be ready to take theater as having something to do with their real lives. Um, That things had been, um, there was a kind of, almost uh, a style that was somewhat like French classical drama. Um, the, the, The dramatic unities were Um, very piously observed on the Italian stage, even in opera until this moment. People wanted wanted theater to be proper and predictable and mythological or allegorical, but they didn't want it to be urgent and real. And that this waltz, the kind of, um, the haste of this waltz and then the layering over it that you heard, I hope, um, of the, um, the anxious sounding chorus and trumpets and drums which are announcing the impending trial, um, the two layers together create this kind of um, collapse of of dimensions which allowed audiences to relate to this as a kind of real thing that they could care about. And that that was, I mean this, you you have to have a lot of, uh, you have to suspend disbelief or move back into an earlier moment of history or something to realize that there were moments, there, there was a whole culture in which going to the theater didn't have anything to do with caring about what happened on stage. But that's sort of what I'm arguing and that this moment breaks through that and allows something different to happen. So although I had a second example, I think
1: what I'd like to do is just play that bit again so that you can hear it yes. again in the light of what you just heard Mary Ann say and then I think we might just throw it open for questions. But
2: here's Rosini again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the first, the first couple of, the first sort of page of this, I was thinking, wow, that's an awful lot of meaning to put onto a really insignificant bit of music. But as it goes on, it gathers intensity, and that's part of the point. Um, so I think it's not. I'm still somewhat convinced. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but, I'm convinced. But. So uh, why don't we throw this open to to questions? So a few or comments or. Uh,
0: I have so many questions, I hardly know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I guess n- number one would be th- the role of the waltz in society ah. and how that might come in. Um, number two might be the role of the French Revolution and Napoleon and how the Italians were reacting to that. Um. The role of the waltz in society is, Stendhal refers to that briefly in this discussion. Um, he says something like, oh, um, people find the waltz troubling right now because there's a kind of fad for waltzing, but they'll get over that. You know, They're only gonna be waltzing for the next 30 years or something, or maybe he said they've been waltzing for 30 years, um, but the, the significance of this effect will always be there which is kind of a surprising thing for him to say, but it's something like that. Um, the, the, the point being that it's the pacing that matters and kind of on a slightly larger scale and not the reference to a waltz. Um, and I think I would agree with that. Um, although the triviality of it does contribute something, the, the kind of the snappy rhythm. Um,
1: um, I have another question related to waltzes. Um, in Verdi's Macbeth there's a waltz in the uh, in the scene where Banquo's ghost appears. I mean, um yeah. The and witches. The
0: Are you thinking of the witches? No, at
1: the at the banquet when uh, when Macbeth is uh uh
0: uh-huh.
1: is horrified by the appearance of the ghost and that, that whole scene is a is a waltz which seems um incongruous with the uh with the with the drama of the scene but, but is extremely effective. Mm-hmm. And also if, you're, if you can talk about Macbeth at all, the, uh, the very ironic triumphal march which, which uh, finishes the opera and I wondered how hmm. contemporary critics reacted to
0: that. That I really don't know. I mean critical reaction to that moment. Um, the, um, I take the question about the banquet to really be a question about triple, oh, two things. One is triple meter in opera Um, which is pretty rare. Uh, All of these composers, but especially Verdi, I think, uh, defaults to various sorts of marches or even things that sound a little bit like polkas sometimes. Um, Triple meter is uh, a special effect and it's often really difficult to tell what it's doing, but it does, um, and I think sometimes it doesn't matter. I mean, there, there are moments when a mismatch between the situation and the music is perfectly fine. Um, you know uh, it, it would ruin most of opera if one tried to map these things in sort of in parallel all the time through the opera. Um, but I think in, in that situation, in the banquet, there's a falseness that's being pointed to, or a, um, especially from the perspective of the Macbeths. Um, that maybe is being gestured towards. There's a festivity, but it's not a felt festivity.
1: There is another, I mean, if there aren't, (laughs) there's another example of um, a more overtly political um, scene uh, in a more overtly political opera, uh, which I thought it might be interesting to listen to. Uh, Not that I don't think that the Rossini is political in its own way because of the way that it has to do with power, and this is something that Marianne points out. Um, but there's an opera by Donizetti, uh, Marino Faliero, uh, about a rebellion against the the Doges uh, that I think is led by one of the Doges himself, mm-hmm. who's persuaded to. And there's a sort of dramatic scene where between two bases, where the Doge is persuaded to join the rebellion, Uh, but initially he resists. And the second musical quote on the handout uh, is from this opera, and so I thought I would play it from a bit shortly before, oh, they moved it, but I think I can find it again. So I'm playing it from a bit, a little bit before where you're...
2: (laughs) Concilia ei complici I il brando per il coraggio, ei la privata gioia, e il comune selvaggio e della del il, il piatto di rancor sono private maniere. Pre-
0: would you like Are you to say to something? something? Well, <laughs> yes. the 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 significance of this passage um, is really has to do with the political. Philosopher and uh, what, activist or leader, Mazzini, um, who wrote a short essay about opera in 1835, 1836. Um, and uh, the st- my starting point for this chapter, which is pretty much entirely about this quite little known Donizetti opera, was the fact that Mazzini, in this essay, his only essay on opera, um, singled out Marino Faliero as Donizetti's best opera and the only opera that represented the kinds of goals that Mazzini thought opera composers should should sort of aim towards, um, or the sorts of values that were desirable in a properly um, conscious revolutionary operatic style. So he kind of goes through a lot about Rossini, um, a little bit about Bellini and then all of the Donizetti operas very briefly um, up until this point and says, well, Marino Faggiero is, is the right kind of thing. Um, this was very striking to me. I, I was fascinated by Mazzini because he is really the only explicit, um, the the only figure in the period that I'm talking about in the book who says explicit things about... Um, political theory, who actually was a revolutionary and a leader of it, very briefly, uh, a leader of the government in 1848 in Rome. Um, so he's, he's politically active, he's um, obviously organizing a huge movement, and he's writing about opera with specifics. He knows the operas, he cares about them, and he makes recommendations. So I had to make this mean something but it was a really bizarre choice because nobody listens to this opera. There's no good recordings of it. Uh, There's, I think, one recording, period. Um, And musicologists never pay attention to it either. So so that's the project for the chapter. Um, And and then it's also Mazzini who leads us to this passage because he's not only counterintuitive in his choice of Marino Faliero, he's counterintuitive in his choice of bit from the opera. And he talks entirely about this duet in which um, a dock worker from the Arsenale comes to the doge and convinces the doge to basically conspire against himself. And some of you will know this story. It actually happened in the 14th century and was told by all sorts of different people, including Byron in a a play. uh, Mazzini is fascinated by that little violin passage that you can see on the middle stave of the music example, um, the top line of the piano and said that it's like a dagger getting under the skin of the doge and that this is this is basically how you convince people to how you activate people politically um, that it was a great musical representation of how you can make somebody do something and you know get them uh, attached to a cause.
1: Yes, and there's another moment, I don't know if this is something that uh, you're reporting that was pointed out, um, but the way in which uh, when Faliero says what you're the reasons that you've given, they're, they're not enough, or they're not enough for me to join the, the uh, conspire against myself, uh, the kind of move into a remote key, as if to signify, mm the kind of stepping back. I mean, so I have to say it's the music and meaning theme. It's these sorts <laughs> of, um, Marianne is talking about political context and I'm always saying, oh, look at the music, <laughs> what's going on here? Well, we're uh, complimentary then. <laughs> yes, but just just to hear again that stabbing melody and the sort
0: of distancing it's incredibly cool because Mazzini never heard this
2: opera
0: great to listen to it again, I think. (laughs) Yeah, so he he could never, he could not, by the time he wrote this, he couldn't have heard the opera because he was in exile in Switzerland. The opera was only performed in Paris a few times. Um, So another interesting part of this story to me, and I, I mean, I really got far too into this, actually, um, was that he must have known about it from one of the librettists, who had been one of his school friends in Genoa. They had gone into exile together, um, and he must—he may have received copies of the score, but he certainly received reports about what the, the opera was gonna be like, and uh, it's i kind of, I'd say I'm 75% convinced, that part of Mazzini's essay was actually written by this other guy, um, or at least that the ideas were drafted by this librettist. So opera is pretty central to the political project in that way as well. So again, throwing
1: the floor open to questions, comments, reactions. (coughs) Well, I'm going to ask Marianne it's a, I'm, I'm kind of interested in the process by which you you came to write the book. Um, one aspect of it I'm, I'm interested in is uh, to what extent did you become familiar with the operas that you write about by listening to them, or
0: how much were you reading the scores? and? I, there's not very much music in this book that I haven't listened to repeatedly. mm mm-hmm. um, there may be a couple of pieces mentioned in passing um, that don't exist in recordings, and I mean, then I would have played through them. Um, but I mean, we're lucky enough to have excellent recordings of a lot of, you know, almost all of this music, including some pretty obscure pieces uh, that are recorded by this one British company, Opera Rara. Mm-hmm. So. Um, there's, uh, there's a chapter of the book on operas about Tudor queens, um, Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots, mainly. And there's some really little-known operas uh, on that subject, as well as some very famous ones by Rossini and Donizetti. And even those are well-recorded. Um, so yeah, I, and some of the choices I made, the, the process I described with Marino Faliero was not really led by loving the opera, although I now love the opera and have decided that I want to make sure it gets recorded well in the near future. I think I might have the power to do that um, or the connections to do that. But, uh, but most of the other chapters, I think, um, I was I, I, what I wrote about was led by the things that I liked the most. Uh, uh, part, partly, at yeah. least certainly in the Tudor Queens chapter. Uh huh. Because I was going to ask you, do you do you
1: like these operas?
0: Definitely, <laughs> definitely <laughs> like them.
1: <laughs> because many of them, I mean, frankly, most of them, <laughs> most of them I'd never heard of, but and a number of the the composers that you write about—Bellini, Donizetti—were people that I felt like. Uh, even a lot of Rossini, I felt like. I, d- I don't have much time for that, I'm a big Verdi fan, like okay, lots of people. Okay, now you're really gonna get
0: people going, <laughs> I hope. That this is probably a great way to stimulate some.
1: But in fun. part, actually, so reading the book, dutifully, I felt like I should listen to some of these operas so I found (laughs) recordings of things like and I just thought the stuff was wonderful I feel like
0: I'm completely we're we're hearing this from somebody who listens to Schoenberg (laughs) while walking around (laughs) for fun Um.
1: so uh, I just think this is like a a wonderful trove of music but the thing that puzzles me about the period is these composers—they were so prolific. You look at the lists, and it was like, what were they? They were composing at a rate of one every six months. Some of them, it Sometimes seems Sometimes like. more. Um,
0: I think Donizetti wrote about four a year mm-hmm. uh, for most of, and Verdi wrote about three in the first part of his career, three, and then two a year. He he really Verdi is the only one who really chafed against this pace. Uh-huh. The Rossini Donizetti, and well, Bellini did also he wrote very few operas comparatively but Rossini and Donizetti just kind of did it and didn't trouble about it very much. Verdi fought to get to a point where he could slow down and be more in control of his own sort of livelihood and his own pace of composition but that's a virtue. Um, it's uh, the bulk of material is part of what it makes what makes it possible to say cool things about this mm-hmm. music. I think exactly. that um, I I'm not musicologists in general, and I in, in specific are not very interested in a sort of very careful interpretation of one opera by Rossini um, because that would seem a bit indulgent or a bit too personal or something. But if you have five or ten. And ten or twenty or thirty observers saying things about them, then I think you can say something that has a bit more clout and a, sort of a bit more historical significance. So, I it really was a virtue for the project that there is so much music and so much of it is so similar. We usually think of that as a d- deficiency, but it's not in this case. Mm-hmm. So I think so Tony a has Tony, uh, yeah, uh, and
1: also uh, Nick. Okay. Whether whether um, whether Norma had any. Um, political resonance for his period. You know, with it, you know, the sort of the Romans and the Brits. Yeah,
0: I know what you're talking about. Um, it certainly did later. Um, the Guerra Guerra chorus uh, became something a little later on, um, but I think not at its initial performances. Um, the, I don't recall anything in, in the sort of early reviews or early talk about the opera where people picked up on that, which is kind of surprising. It may Bellini in general was a part was seen as on a different plane um, as you know much more sort of wispy um, and uh, detached from uh, sort of everyday life really. Um.
1: Yes, that's a question, hi,
0: thank you. you mentioned finding cool things in the course of your research. I wonder if you could tell us a couple of the cool things you found that you've tucked away in rare pages of the book. Well, the whole business about um, the spy network uh, in eighteen thirty in um, among opera people in the 1830s is is probably the coolest thing. Um, the uh, there were so. There were some, there were some sort of um, covert revolutionaries, and some people uh, among the circle of Mazzini who were, in, you know, spread among uh, initially Switzerland and then Paris and then London, um, so completely dispersed outside of Italy um, by force. Um, and so there was there was a lot of surreptitious communication about political things among them, and then. The business network of opera was full of sympathizers. Um, so they were also communicating. There's, there's actually um, an instruction I found in Mazzini's letters where somebody says, um, we're, uh, you know, write your message in lemon juice. Um, and you know, send it to this address, which is where Donizetti was living in Paris. Um, and his business agent will pick it up and will understand the secret, me- You know, will know how to read the secret message um, on the letter. So the guy who was handling all of Donizetti's dealings with theaters in Paris was part of this network. Um, and he was, part, he was part of Mazzini's inner circle, but he was also a spy for the Vatican, almost certainly. Um, so there are these sort of double agents who who crop up here and there, and it's incredibly difficult to figure out who was doing what and you know who would who what they meant. Uh, you made a glance. I Nick
1: had a hand up.
0: Let's go to Nick after Francis. Okay. You made a glancing reference
3: to the long tradition of audiences not paying any attention to what hmm. was happening on stage. I wondered if you'd say any more about that, about uh, when it was first noticeable that the, there was some real response to the... Uh
0: huh. Um, my theory would be that, that people were always paying attention and always not paying attention. Um, I mean, I guess there, uh, sometime after 1830 or 1840, um, that the kind of thing that we do now, where you know the theater is dark, the, the darkened theater actually came quite a bit later than that, even. But the kind of thing that we do now, where where silence is expected and absorption in the performance is the norm, that. That started maybe in the 1830s. It's the general theory is that it started as a reaction to Beethoven, um, who made things so difficult uh, that you had to pay attention. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I think that, that kind of works. Uh, there's, there's a pretty good documentation about that. Um, but it didn't happen during Beethoven's lifetime. It was kind of gradually afterwards. Um, the, but at the same time, I think people continued to go to opera for all of those other reasons and continued to do all of those other things. The opera houses in Italy in the 19th century, some of them at least, in Florence in particular, would not have been able to exist, and Naples, um, would not have been able to exist if they weren't also casinos. Like you could gamble in the lobby, uh, you know, between acts or during the opera. Um, but people were paying attention selectively. And they went so often, I think this is the key point, they went so often to the same opera in a very short space of time that they didn't have to listen to the whole thing on any given evening. They could kind of piece it together over multiple performances. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's do Nick. Oh,
3: yeah. um, uh, So I have a question about, um, you know, you mentioned, it's actually relevant to what you were just saying. You mentioned that... uh, you know, it would be indulgent or something to do a close reading of a single opera. (laughs) Even though, of course, people used to do that quite a lot. Um, And indeed, if they said they were doing music and politics or um, opera and politics, that's one of the main ways in which, you know, political meanings were sort of extracted, um, Mm -hmm. was, you know, this face-off between critic and some operatic text. Um, Now, obviously, in your book, you're quite sensitive to things that, I guess, in another context... Could be described as you know media diversity, you know sort of all the different places, not just the theatre in which you might encounter music. And when Hannah says, you know, I went off and listened to this music, what what she also means is I went and I found a recording of some people who played it a while ago, and then I press play or put it on my phone or whatever. You know that actually there are all these st- layers of mediation that allow that music to affect Hannah in a particular way that are different from the 1830s or whatever. Um, so I'm wondering what, in your book, you can conclude about what's distinctive about the way that music travels, like the way that, you know, if you're interested mm. in the structures of feeling, w- w- you know, what ha- what different spaces can it inhabit? How can it be passed around? And how is that important for I- its politics in this period?
0: Great question, hard question. Um, I mean, there's some really obvious things like, uh, Novels. I mean, you have people like Robert Darnton, you know, for an earlier period, talking about how books traveled. Uh, Books could be printed cheaply and traveled, and ideas could move around. So, so I'm taking the question to be partly, you know, what does music do that is not that? Um, And the first obvious thing is that people tended back then, people tended to be together when they heard it. Pretty much had to be um, because somebody had to be performing it and either you were performing it for yourself with your family and friends, or you were performing it for a group of people in public or in semi-public or whatever. Um, there's uh, the, the part of the book that deals explicitly with this is a part about songs written for performance in Salon, in Parisian Salon, which were, uh, which were full of references to opera. Um, and sort of secret messages that I think also have something to do with sort of the reality of Italian exiles at the time. Um, So there, the performance setting was a group of initiates who had a set of shared assumptions and the fact that they knew each other and knew some of the same things would be important. Um, What the book doesn't talk about mainly for lack of of reliable documentation from the period is the sort of um, village bands and performances in the piazza. Um, There's a lot of um, very beloved sort of urban legends about cleaning ladies singing Verdi in in Milanese apartment buildings and things like that. Um, That may or may not have gone on. I did try in the chapter on Verdi to track as closely as I could the first moments when Verdi was mentioned in relation to political protests, like actual um, moments where people went out in the street and marched and either sang Verdi or talked about Verdi. Um, So there's traces of documentation about that and also about people commandeering bits of opera, changing the words or changing the setting Uh, or applauding at the wrong moments, making certain things pop out that weren't meant to, um, and sending covert messages that way. Um, But there's not a lot of documentation about those things, and I I feel like that's possibly a separate project that has to do with um, popular appropriations of opera tunes for as political song, which is something I would like to do, but haven't done in the book.
1: Uh, so I don't know. Do we have time for a question? Another question? Or? Have like one
0: minute left. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Nick <Nikola, laughs> Since he's close <laughs> to the mic, yeah.
4: <laughs> I've won the, from a different angle. So when you're kind of listening to that, for example, the violin moment, yeah, which is compared to the dagger in that. So uh, just thinking about rhetorical devices, kind of coming from a more uh, literary perspective, uh, how... How standardized is that along hmm. the lines when you think through that repertoire? I mean, is there kind of a standardized set of musical devices uh, used as rhetorical devices that are meant to produce, obviously, in that case, hmm. a certain affect? Well and, and how much is standardization and experimentation with that kind of part of what, oh, wow. what others
0: do? That's a great question. Um, it is the musical language is very conventional and very standardized, so everything you hear somewhere you will hear a whole bunch of other places, but not the very same notes, just the same kind of texture or the same kind of pacing or melody. Um, this exact example doesn't remind me of very much else in Donizetti. Um, the fact that you have the, the orchestra sort of leading and the voices coming along after, that's very typical. Um, to suggest change or to suggest a kind of flow in the social relations between the characters, I don't know if that, you would call that um, something as clearly marked as a rhetorical device. Um,
1: but I feel like interjecting to say that even though these are kind of conventionalized and that you'll hear them again and again, they can bear different meanings, like, mm-hmm. like the yeah. waltz can mean yeah. so many different
0: things well, in so many the, contexts. Well, the, certainly the pattern, the rhythmic pattern here of the kind of, and the kind of constant slow upward motion, which is kind of poking, that is very specific to this situation. That's not a standardised gesture. Um, there, there are some very interesting combinations of textures and rhythms, though, that suggest things like um, gossip, um, there's a whole gossip topos, but I don't think there's a rhetorical device as specific as you know. here's how to get somebody to change their mind and join your cause. This is a, really a one-off. So I think
1: it's time to stop, but uh, thank you all so much for coming.
0: Thank you, great questions.
1: We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in this series.